Why watch that as a podcast featuring the critic and referee who go head-to-head on a quest to discover the best movies and TV shows Hollywood has to offer. Expect the unexpected from the critic. Well, nothing gets past the ref. We do all the work. So you don't have to. Welcome Welcome to to Why Watch Watch That. Listeners, hey, guess what? What? Why watch that? Why watch that? We have a giveaway, another one coming to you. Oh, oh, oh. You get a DVD. You get a DVD, and you get a DVD. <laughs> and this time, it is what men want. Mm. So not the Mel Gibson one. This is starring Taraji P. Henson, Aldous Hodge, and a whole bunch of other people. Erica Badu is in there. Tracy Morgan is on the cover. Yes. <laughs> now the details, Ref. Can you tell us when? How did people find this giveaway? How do they enter? What's the deal? Okay, you can go to whywatchthat.com/giveaways. You can go into the giveaway tab, and there you will find a chance to enter. In um, and it starts again May 6th as of taping, but this thing ends May 29th, so you don't have that much time. There will be three winners, and all you got to do is click, click, click. And follow the instructions, and you too could own what then what. <laughs> Ooh, and this is a Blu-ray combo pack. Yes, you'll get all kinds of deleted scenes and lots of merriment. So go <laughs> ahead <laughs> and enter whywatchthat.com as the ref said giveaways, and we'll see who wins. The Why Watch That TV Talk. Hey there, listeners. It's us, your friendly referee and critic. (laughs) (laughs) And we're here to do you some good. That's right. I know y'all have been waiting a long time, but yes, we did give our reaction to Game of Thrones. We wanted to put that out there. Mm. And uh, now we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled program, which you know what it is, TV and more TV. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just letting you all know, note, 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 we're going to be taking a slight little tiny hiatus uh, because people are flying all over the countries, <laughs> <laughs> enjoying themselves. And plus, you know, we do need a breather, but... Until that hiatus, we will give you enough to feast on. So, let's get started with an upcoming series premiere. It's called The Hot Zone. Uh Now, Critic, you got a chance to see the first two parts of The Hot Zone at Tribeca Film Festival. Um, However, it does premiere this Memorial Day on the 27th. It's a mini series, about six episodes. It's on National Geographic. It um, stars some very familiar um, faces. And I tell you what, between the hot zone and Chernobyl, I can't. I know. <laughs> that, that is beautifully stated. <laughs> but let's tell you this story so you know what the ref is talking about. In 1980, a wealthy white man in Kenya is rushed from his well-appointed house into a taxi 
by one of his Kenyan employees. And he doesn't look good. He's lethargic and sweating profusely. Then we see him on a plane. Yes, a plane of all places. And he looks even worse. He has bumps all over his body. Mm -mm. Plus, after a daunting trip to the plane's restroom, when he arrives back at his seat, he starts to vomit. Uh-uh. But just what is what is it that's coming out of this man? What is it? Now, this alarms everyone on the plate, of course. I when, they, when they land in Nairobi, the man is rushed to the hospital. And while there, a doctor looks him over and is understandably concerned. The nurse who attends to the man with the doctor asks whether it's the new virus. The doctor says no. So what is it then? Well, unfortunately for the doctor, he finds that out in the worst way possible. Mm-mm. And with that, the hot zone begins. And from there, we see how that incident in that hospital in Nairobi led to an important blood sample being housed in the U.S. Army's facility for the study of infectious diseases. It's housed in that facility's hot zone which is the section of the facility that's designated for level four diseases, which are the worst of the worst. And in 1989, we're introduced to Colonel Nancy Jacks, played by Juliana Margulies. Oh, we know her. We know her. And in this TV show, she plays a doctor and an expert in those diseases. So when Colonel Jacks receives a specimen from a sick monkey, that's supposed to contain a disease that's harmless to humans, she's alarmed when it turns out to be something else. But what could that something else be? Well, her colleague, Dr. Peter Jarling, played by Topher Grace, thinks it's nothing special. But Nancy has other ideas. She thinks it might be Ebola. Uh-oh, I don't like that word. But hold on. There's never been an outbreak of Ebola in the States. Plus, the way that Nancy went about investigating the sample was questionable. It was akin to what her now-disgraced mentor, played by Leon Cunningham, who's an onion knight in Game of Thrones, closer to what he would have done. However, Nancy will stop at nothing to prove that what she thinks is a reality. After all, if she's right, it means that an unmitigated disaster is in the making, and who knows just how many lives are at stake. And so Nancy gets to the truth in a way that's certainly unconventional and that requires the help of her mentor and involves the private facility that owns the infected monkeys. Plus, what about her colleagues who may have been exposed? And what about their families? And what about her own family? She has two kids and a husband, played by the Americans Noah Emmerich, who works at the same army base. Well, I'll tell you this, it doesn't look good. And with that, we come to this question. Does the Hot Zone, which is produced by Ridley Scott and is based on Richard Preston's best-selling non-fiction book, does it live up to its very real subject matter? Is it as compelling as it sounds? Well, let's start with the good. Please. Much of this series is straight out of the horror thriller playbook, which is appropriate and effective at holding your attention. I mean, just look at the camera work and listen to the music. In addition, the cast is a strong one, which is a good thing because some of this writing is suspect. Now look, I understand the desire to bring personality to these characters in the midst of a lot of scientific information. However, if you're gonna do that, 
The dialogue needs to sound right. It needs to sound like people talking instead of like characters in a TV show talking. But unfortunately, that's not what happens here. I mean, there's a moment in the second episode when Nancy and Wade, who's her mentor, are about to confront the infected monkeys. And as they walk down the hallway, Nancy essentially asks why the place doesn't feel right. And in response, Wade says, quote, because something lives here that isn't monkeys or people, unquote. Give me a break. (laughs) But that's not all, because another problem is that the creative team doesn't always trust that the audience will understand what's at stake. For instance, in the first episode, when Nancy experiences quite the emergency, they flash to images of her kids. Uh, But excuse me, I didn't need to see that to know what she was thinking. (laughs) Thanks, though. And so here's what I suggest. If you like stories about contagions, go ahead and check out The Hot Zone because as someone who's always interested in these kinds of things, I was willing to overlook The Hot Zone's flaws and I found that enough of it helped my attention, especially when it made my pulse race. However, if you're not into this kind of stuff, if you're not someone who likes medical thrillers, real or not, that have echoes of horror, I don't think that The Hot Zone will change your mind. Mm, Chernobyl or hot, the hot zone? Chernobyl. <laughs> Moving on. On Hulu, there was a premiere uh, called Catch 22. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do I know that? Because you read it in middle school or high school. It was a book. It is a book by, uh, by Joseph Heller. And it is. it has been adapted into a six-part mini series with a (laughs) huge producing executives. I mean, we're talking about a JC, JC, really? (laughs) George Clooney, Grant Heslov are helming this. Um, It is definitely star-studded with all kinds of folks that the critic's going to share. I've seen it. He's seen it. What does he think? (laughs) Yeah, and for the cast, everybody, just so you know, look them up. (laughs) (laughs) Look them up. It's a lot of folks here. There's a lot of people in this show. (laughs) (laughs) And at the start of this adaptation, as you said, of Joseph Heller's classic novel, we're introduced, if that's the word, to John Yossarian, nicknamed Yo-Yo. Yo-Yo! Yo-Yo, who's played by Christopher Abbott. Mm, Who's not to be confused with Jon Snow. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, absolutely not. They look alike. (laughs) Yeah, but he was in Girls. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Not Kit Harington, okay, gotcha. (laughs) So, different HBO show. (laughs) (laughs) And the question at the beginning is, is what we're seeing really happening? Because he definitely doesn't seem right, and he's certainly not dressed right. (laughs) And then we're taken back to when Yo-Yo was at flight training school and when he and all of his fellow trainees, whom I'm not going to (laughs) list, were being chewed out by Lieutenant Scheisskopf, played by co-director and producer George Clooney. (laughs) And I mean, the lieutenant is reading them the riot act. (laughs) So this must be about something important, right? I mean, this has got to be a life and death situation, right? Well, it depends on how you define life and death, because for Scheitzkopf, 
getting his trainees to march correctly seems to be a matter of the utmost urgency. <laughs> and all the while, Yo-Yo's telling Clevenger, who's one of his fellow trainees, that the major question that the lieutenant keeps screaming at them is merely rhetorical. Don't bother answering him. So just what do you think Clevenger does in defiance oh. of Yo-Yo's warnings as a result? Oh, boy. And just where does that lead? And with that, Hulu's six-episode miniseries introduces us to its interpretation of the world that Heller created over 60 years ago. And so the main question is this. Does it capture Heller's mixture of comedy and horror? I mean, is that even possible? Because while war is always a tricky subject, it's especially so when it's supposed to be presented as a dark satire based on one of the most significant books of the last century. Also keep in mind that Yo-Yo's preoccupied by the thought that so many people want to kill him. It's <laughs> World War II after all. And while that kind of sentiment makes sense, it's quite the unexpected focus for a war story, which is part of the reason why the novel made its mark. Plus, while Yosarian would like nothing more than to get out of the war, the army keeps upping the number of missions that their pilots or uh, their bombardiers must fly to complete their service. And even if he were to voice his objections to having to fly so many life-threatening missions, that would only prove his sanity, thereby making him the perfect candidate to fly said missions. Because that's the Catch-22 people, ah. which Heller coined in his novel. You see, Catch-22 is a rule that states that it's insane for any soldier to want to continuously fly dangerous missions, which would be grounds to release said soldier from duty. But, if a soldier asks to be removed from duty on those grounds, he thereby proves his sanity, which would be grounds for him to remain in combat. Get it? Got it. <laughs> and so we must ask, does this miniseries hit the mark and meet the challenge of making something engaging out of a story that uses myriad characters and events to cloak what it's really about? Because Catch-22 is really about the psychology of war and the helplessness of ordinary people in the face of governmental power. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, I'll say this to start. It looks the part. Mm. I mean, it looks great with its crisp images and period-appropriate brown hues. And the editing is a good match for that. Ditto for the music. Plus, you can tell that the cast wants to do well. And Christopher Abbott in the lead role is keenly aware of why he's saying and doing what he's saying and doing. However, if this is supposed to be funny, then its rhythm isn't right. For one, the dialogue sounds just like what it is, dialogue. I mean, much of the time I felt like I was reading a script as the actor said their lines, which is why many of Catch-22's best moments happen when there's barely any dialogue or when no one's talking. And for two, jokes of all kinds have to be set up in a way that allows the punchlines and or moments to land. But the punchlines and or moments here come across hazily. I mean, you might find yourself chuckling or snorting every now and then, but that's not enough. And I think that what might have helped in the absence of crisper execution is if the music were used to add structure to the jokes. Give them some sizzle and clue the audience into what you're doing. But they don't, which is why I'm not quite sure about what this show wants to be as a result. And I'm not sure that everyone in the cast is clear either. 
It's just not funny enough to be a good comedy. It doesn't sting enough to be good satire. And it's not clear enough to fully succeed as a drama, though it really could have if they decided to be less faithful to Heller and committed to that all the way. And actually, it's clear that that's where they feel most comfortable. But they didn't, so we're in no man's land here. And as a result, in the end, Catch-22 is the epitome of being just fine or maybe even somewhat good. But I think that everyone involved here wanted to accomplish much more. Moving on to some season finales. Oh, 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 we've got lots of them. So here we go. Young Sheldon on CBS. Yes, it's already been renewed for season three and four. Yay. Hey, ta-ta to season two. As we say ta-ta for good for The Big Bang Theory, which this show is its prequel. (laughs) And in this season of Young Sheldon, the diminutive titular genius, who's 10 years old now, actually helped his mother find her faith in God again, despite his own beliefs. He did his parents' taxes. He shamed church parishioners with the help of his sister into ponying up more money than they would have otherwise for the church's sad sack pastor. And he played video games with his meemaw, who continued her amusing relationship with Sheldon's mentor, Dr. John Sturgis, which weathered the test of her gambling habit. And speaking of tests, Sheldon's brother Georgie gained a greater appreciation for the perils of love, and he endured the embarrassing prospect of Sheldon becoming their class president. Plus, Sheldon's twin sister Missy proved yet again that she knows way too much about interpersonal relationships for her age, while Papa George continued to do his best to stay calm and find some sort of peace wherever it may be, as his wife Mary fretted about everything and everyone. And in the season finale, Georgie brought Cable into the house, much to the chagrin and then the eventual interest of his father. Mm. Uh But the main event was Sheldon's excitement in regard to the upcoming announcement of the Nobel Prize in Physics, which led to quite the tender moment between Dr. Sturgis and Meemaw. But for Sheldon, just as he found out that no one was going to join him at five in the morning to listen to the announcement, we were treated to a look at his future via the present by way of an appropriate wink at the Big Bang Theory. Yes, as the ref said, remember it gave rise to the character of Sheldon, and it just ended its record-breaking run on CBS. And with that, young Sheldon once again finished a season in style, and it proved that not all second seasons are slumps. It's one of the best comedies on all of TV, and not just network TV, and anyone who has even a little bit of nerdiness in them should check it out. And while it's completely different from The Big Bang Theory stylistically, I hope that fans of that show will continue to find some joy from this fledgling yet analytically endearing version of Sheldon and that others will get a kick out of him too. I know I do. Talk about record breaking. Mm. Listen, I just want one of Shonda Rhimes' paychecks. I'll just take one. Because Grey's Anatomy is headed to its 16th and 17th season. Yes, it's already been renewed. Uh, But first, let's talk about season 15 on ABC. Now, at this point, it's kicking ER's tail as one of the longest-running medical uh, procedural dramas. Mm -hmm. I'll take half your check. 
Just half. Come on, Shonda. <laughs> okay, so here's some of what we got from Grey's Anatomy this season. The strange ups and downs of the formerly married Dr. Owen and Dr. Amelia, who decided to take on the challenges of adoption, after which they found other partners. For Amelia, it was Dr. Link, who seems like the perfect guy. While for Owen, it was Dr. Teddy, who came back from overseas, ready to give birth to his child. Yeah. But does her new beau, Dr. Tom, know the deal? We also saw Dr. Nico push away Dr. Levi after Nico caused the death of a patient. And Dr. Miranda Bailey took a sabbatical, which allowed Dr. Alex Karev to be the interim chief. And then Karev's wife, Dr. Joe Karev, got some life-changing and unimaginably devastating news after she found and met her birth mother. Yeah. Then there's Dr. Jackson Avery and Dr. Maggie Pierce, who invented ways to be in conflict, while Jackson's mama, Dr. Catherine Fox, had her own health scare, which eventually, through a circuitous path, of course, brought her closer to her son and her husband, Dr. Richard Wepper, who also faced his own test, a test of his sobriety. In addition, Dr. Weber was implicated in a crime committed by Dr. Meredith Gray after she decided to falsify medical records in order to provide care for a sick girl. And as a result of that, she, Weber, and Dr. Andrew DeLuca, whom she's fallen in love with despite herself, faced and will continue to face a very uncertain future. And of course, all of that was just a fraction of this season's soap operatic events. But that's as it should be, because Grey's Anatomy is at its best when it juggles multiple storylines nimbly. And once again, they accomplished that for most of season 15. However, at each season's end, what I wish they wouldn't do is forced together some sort of major ending for multiple storylines while ginning up multiple tangential uh, crises to boot. Like a fog storm that led to an accident, which complicated the cooperation of an agoraphobic blood donor, and which resulted in the disappearance of one of the aforementioned doctors. I mean, I just wish they would trust their storylines a little more in the end because they already have enough heat. They are already amped up enough. Plus, can every medical show in history please stop doing extended scenes outdoors? I mean, we know that you're not really in the environment you're pretending to be in. It's distracting. Even still, Grey's Anatomy continues to hum along as an example of how you can make standard network TV work, and they deserve praise for that. Hmm. Well, let's move on to FX's show, Better Things. Ew, we're in its third season, and it's already been renewed for season four. Now, as we talked about not too, too long ago, this mother of, what, three? Yes. Always juggling somebody's ego, somebody's problems, somebody's situation, including her own. <laughs> so, in this third season of Better Things, co-creator, co-writer, director, and star, Pamela Adlin, loosen the grip on what this show was to allow it to become whatever she wanted it to be in the moment. And there were two big themes that ran separately through the entire season only to converge in the end. 
there was, of course, as always, Sam's relationships with her three children and her mother. And her mother, once again, proved to be a piece of work. You don't want to go on an Easter egg hunt with her. While Sam's two older children threatened to drive both Sam and me up the wall. Max decided that college wasn't challenging enough after being there for two hot seconds. So she returned home to do seemingly whatever she wanted. But she's an artist, you see. And Frankie, who's whip smart, is also the biggest smart aleck on the planet, giving Sam a run for her money without any relief in sight. I mean, at numerous times, I wanted to strangle both Max and Frankie, but especially Frankie. However, the one bright spot was 11-year-old Duke, who's the youngest. She's still a joy, and she experienced a surprising yet expected change. But don't forget about Sam herself, whose friendships and other relationships went through some uncomfortable shifts. However, she found something that eventually became quite endearing with a certain character played by Matthew Broderick. Plus, she gave herself permission to be wrong and to do whatever she wanted to do in the moment without caring much about the consequences. And actually, when you combine who she is with who her kids and her mother are, the picture of the matrilineal side of their family from Gran to Sam to the kiddos is quite clear and consistent. You're always thinking who's in control, who's not in control. And the result was a subtle yet significant message that rang true. In addition, when that matrilineal theme combined with the theme involving the most important men from Sam's past, better things deepened even further without ever seeming to be trying to do so. Sam had to, or sort of tried to, get to the bottom of whatever has kept her somewhat linked to her ex-husband mentally. And she had to confront, or rather was confronted by, the quite literal specter of her father. And the recurrence and reappearance of her father's ghost, both to Sam and to Duke, took on greater meaning when in the season finale, Sam reached a pivotal milestone. And that's when this season's two major themes became a rewarding whole. And with that, Better Things in season three has proved to be imperfect in all the right ways. Its disjointed rhythm gives it an awkward believability. And as a result, it escapes genre classification. And most of all, these characters have become my friends in some cases, and my acquaintances in others. It's like I'm there with them, going through it with them. And at times, it doesn't even feel like TV, but in the most natural way possible. Mmm, you like that show. I do. <laughs> so up next is Barry. Ew. Season two. Ew. And it's coming up for another season. Season three, yes, renewed by HBO. Eight episodes again this season after the first. Oh, the Emmys love them. The industry loves them. Critics love them. And we'll find out whether the ref loves them as well. Well, it is season two of Barry. Now, remember, this is the one with Bill Hader. <laughs> he co-created it with Alec Berg. And it is uh, about a hitman. Mm -hmm. mm. With a strong background and military expertise of sniping people out. However, what does one do with such a skill when the war is over? Well, <laughs> that's what Barry's all about. And what we learned from season one is that although he is still using his skills to take out certain people, mm. 
he found a new love and his love is from for acting (laughs) no now remember just to catch you up really really quickly last season barry falls in love with acting he also falls in love with one of his uh co-stars if you will sally she too is um an actress he joined the class because he had to put take a hit on someone in the class ends up joining the class for real meeting his instructor famous famous famously and wonderfully played by henry winkler gene his name is and gene changes his life because he gives him purpose Hmm. now we know at the end of season one gene who is madly in love with detective janice moss finds her dead well we don't find her actually she's dead and so barry has this horrible weight that he's carrying that he killed his wonderful instructor's lover mm. why because she outed him oh Oof. now in season two remember no ho hank mm-hmm. <laughs> he, and his, he and his uh gang men are now infused with cristobal's men so they are not only putting out hits they're also dealing heroin and in order to do that, they're going to have to bring in another mob boss, so to speak, Esther. But Esther don't play no games, and she cannot be trusted, according to NoHo Hank. So what does NoHo Hank do? He goes back to Barry and says, hey, I'm losing out here. Like, Crystal Ball's my bestie, and now he doesn't want to be my bestie anymore, basically, saying, how you got to train my men. They've got to be ready if anything goes down. Barry says, absolutely not. Somehow, of course, Barry gets talked into it. He trains NoHo Hank's men. Remember, also, sideline, Fuchs, who was Barry's boss, so to speak. He's the one who told Barry who to hit and what to hit. They're in the outs. They're not talking. However, Fuchs trying to warm his way in the whole season back into Barry's life. Barry's having none of it. Meanwhile, back on the acting ranch, (laughs) Dean has the acting class doing a specific exercise that they would use a very personal and traumatic part of their history to tell their story, to find their truth. Hmm. Sally, who has, remember, an abusive background, decides to explore that. Now, what becomes of that when you explore something so dark and... Will her uh, her uh, abuser catch wind of this and show up? Oh, you know he does. What does Barry do about that? Mm. Oh. You'll have to find out to see what he does about that. But Barry, too, has to explore his most traumatic moment. And we discover for the first time as an audience why Barry is so in love with killing people (laughs) it is affirmative we see how that goes down and it's not how you think he was in a war he was doing a task and something happens that you won't expect Hmm. now if when we get to the end of season two of barry we find out sally is auditioning and she has a major movie role that she has to decide if she's going to take or not but if she does she will have to sell herself out and compromise. Does she do that? Da, da, da. In other surprises, Fuchs, who's trying to worm his way back into Barry's life, finds himself into the arms of Barry's enemy. Hmm. How hmm. did he get there? And what 
does did he find out about Detective Janice Janice's body? Will he tell Jean that Barry indeed killed his lover? <laughs> You'll have to find that out. Now, I want to pause to say this. Season two is full of expected and unexpected twists and turns. Case in point, episode five. Now, if you... I, I don't know what I watched. And for those of you who watched it, you're like, oh my gosh, yes. It was the most bizarre episode. In fact, Critic, I challenge you, just watch episode five. <laughs> it was one of the most bizarre episodes that I have ever seen on television. Bizarre. Mm-hmm. Mm. What was I watching? Why was a little girl eating people's faces? Why are people coming back to life? Do you think you're dead? Sounds and like Legion. It's, yes, it does. <laughs> this is very remembered. Why the detective who starts really finding out about Barry and really trying to reel in Barry and, and he thinks he has it. What does he do when he finds out Barry killed his partner? <laughs> Episode five is one strange thing. And all of season five is strange. I will keep watching Barry because I'm in, I'm just in love with the fact that this assassin loves to study his beats. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, The Blacklist, which, dear goodness, you're still watching this? Season six is over. It's on NBC. It's already renewed for season seven. I mean, we know that she's is or isn't somebody's daughter. I mean, how many Blacklists, how how many people are on The Blacklist? (sighs) Well, it could be, it could be as many people as they want because they didn't tell us. You know? So in season six of The Blacklist, Lizzie, who was under pressure from her sister, anonymously turned Raymond into the police without him knowing it. He was subsequently, stick with this here, ref, he was subsequently sentenced to death. Oh, jeez. But of course he got away and continued to help Lizzie's secret FBI task force. I, I mean, this is still a procedural, remember? But the task force was being monitored by the president, no, not that one, who was up to no good. And I'll come back to that later. Now, Raymond, of course, desperately wanted to find out who turned him in and, of course, resorted to killing people until the truth came out. Oh, boy. So Raymond was on a collision course with Lizzie, but only she and Raymond's right-hand man, Dembe, knew it. Also, Agent- Dembe's still around. (laughs) He's still around. Give that man a raise. Yes, promote him, please. I know, I like him, and that's saying something. He's Lizzie's father. (laughs) Also, (laughs) Agent Wrestler, in a consequential move, decided to get to the bottom of Lizzie's parentage despite her wish to keep him in the dark. And in the midst of it all, the storyline involving Navabi and Aram had the rare distinction of working rather well without relying on Reddington's presence, even though he unfairly shouldered much of the blame for its heartbreaking end. So after a very challenging start to this season, the Blacklist found a better balance by, for once, putting more of a focus on Reddington on a consistent basis, which is where every inch of its bread is buttered. But did it stay that way? That's the question. Well, during this season's final episodes, 
Lizzie finally came clean to Raymond about what she did to him, and they had a falling out as a result of her portrayal. But Lizzie discovered how Raymond became Raymond, so she changed her mind about him. She loves him now and is oh so sorry. I can't even. However, Raymond's having none of it. Also, I do have to say that the supposed revelation of who Raymond really is fell flat. Can anybody say weak? After all, it was an obvious possibility. I mean, the only thing that could have lived up to the interminable buildup would have been if they revealed that Raymond was Thanos or something. Or actually, <laughs> I mean, Ultron would be closer to the mark, don't you think? He wasn't mm -hmm. a Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Lizzie now thinks the world of Raymond after what she learned, but Raymond won't forgive her for her betrayal. However, for a certain reason, he can't kill her because he would if he could. But oddly, she seems nonplussed, which was such a poor choice for her character because it lessened the threat and it took away from Raymond's status as someone you don't mess around with. I mean, it's fine for Lizzie to believe that Raymond won't kill her, but there should be a whiff of a doubt underneath her confidence. There's a difference between believing something and knowing something. But in the end, all of that took a back seat to the White House plot line because Raymond was at odds with the president and his staff. That's why they decided to monitor our trusty FBI team. And they had a good reason for doing so because they were in the midst of some plot against the country, which was the major threat throughout the entire season and which placed the entire Blacklist team in mortal danger. And so in the season finale, there were several questions that were either answered or considered. And here they are. What is the White House really up to? Will Raymond be able to forgive Liz? Oh, of course he will. What role will Dimbe play? Her father. <laughs> and most importantly, is Lizzie's mom, who's Raymond's one true love, remember, really dead? Or is there something else going on? Oh my and God. what will the consequences be for Raymond if he tries to find out? Cliffhanger time. Now look. Here's the thing about the blacklist. As we've said on this podcast ad nauseum, it has given birth to one compelling character and found a great actor to play him, which makes me think twice anytime I feel like taking this show off my watch list. Just when I go, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done. James Spader comes in and does something entertaining. So while that's not really enough to forgive this show's lack of support for that character and actor, it's also not bad enough to dismiss it outright. And as a result, The Blacklist is a show that straddles the line. But one day, I will get tired of that. I'm just not sure when that will be. It might be sometime before its next season begins. It might, or it might not. I just know that somehow, in some way, there will be something that shocks me out of limbo, thereby giving me the reason I'm looking for to say farewell for good. Regardless, the person to blame for all of this is the ref because she's the one who implored me to keep watching when I decided to stop doing so all those years ago. And I have very little to show for it. Oh, you sure have very, very little. I stopped that thing. You know what? Moving on. I'm not even going to give it any more airtime. Blackish on ABC has come to its finale, already renewed for season six. Is there really a surprise there? No. no. But we also know that Rainbow's getting a spin-off. It's called Mixed-ish. Hmm, I don't know about that. It is definitely going to be a uh, young Rainbow. It's not going to be now Rainbow. It's a tiny little young middle school Rainbow and her three, or excuse me, and her two siblings, mom and dad living on the 
whatever. I, anyway, Blackish. We both got to see every episode of the season. I thoroughly enjoyed the finale and the whole season, in fact. Mm. Um, so, look, this is real easy, everybody. What do we have going on? It, it, let's just talk about this finale. I'll come back to what else happened. <laughs> so, Junior, we know from the beginning, decided not to go to Howard. He, he took said, a, <laughs> a a gap year. A gap year. He found his way at Dre's workplace, got an internship that had its own frictions. But then, of course, you know that the people at Dre's workplace liked Junior. <laughs> Migos comes in at the end, offers him this big job. So, what does he decide to do? Everybody. Mm-hmm. And then, what do his black parents and black grandparents decide to do as a result? Oh, in the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so that whole thing happened. That was the major through line, if they have one here. Now, we also have the two young twins coming into their own, having certain changes. I mean, you know, we, even little Jack said, hey, hey, mom, I'll go in your footsteps and be a doctor. It, that was so cute. <laughs> so we had that. We have, of course, Dre. Dre, there was an episode where his sister, played by Raven Simone, comes in. It's like, your kids are scared of the hood. <laughs> and then he found out that maybe he's scared too. <laughs> now, see, that is black-ish. See, that's it. Yeah. And we had other things like that. We still have Jennifer Lewis just popping up in scenes, which I always love. We still have all kinds of wonderful people. Lawrence Fishburne will show up every now and then, and so on and so forth. Uh, I think, though, Ref, for me, after the last season, they found the groove again. I will say, though, it's just not quite as sharp as it used to be. But I'm cool with it. What about you? I love this season. I think it's found its groove and then some. There were some really wonderful highlights this year. In the in the finale, we do have to say that I loved Dre's not flash forward. It was just sort of this imagining of Junior becoming uh, Charlie. Oh my goodness! <laughs> like hilarious. It was wonderful. You know, I I do have to say that this is one of the shows that no matter what you're doing, no matter what kind of week you've had, and no matter if you haven't picked it up in a long time, you will certainly feel like home when you do. I really enjoyed the twins growing up. Really enjoyed it this season. They, uh, we got Diane um, exploring her uh, little girlhood or womanhood. Mm. She's, you know, figuring that stuff out. Then you've got Jack trying to play football, and he just shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and of course, of course, we have Junior always pushing the envelope, loving that he's in the real world now. So yeah, it was a good season for me. Enjoy Blackish. Pick it up anytime you want to. You won't be disappointed. Let's end this thing. Good gracious. Mm. With the good fight. I knew you'd save this for last. <laughs> season three is done. But season four is <laughs> already in the works. Now remember, this is not on CBS. And some of you are, I can tell, I my mom, I can't find it. I'm like, no, you won't be able to find it. It's on CBS All Access. You have to pay for it. And she goes, well, I can just look at my on-demand. No, you can't no. look on on-demand. <laughs> it's an actual separate app. And uh, you got a chance to see season three. What, what are we dealing with? Diane is just 
we love this Diane too. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, and this time around in the good fight, Diane got involved with a plot to fix the 2020 election against Trump, which of course poked fun at Trumpism, but also didn't let his opponents off the hook. And the results of that certainly spiraled completely out of control right to the end. Oh boy, and <clears throat> Roland Bloom, as a ridiculous and ridiculously effective Roy Cohn and Roger Stone aligned lawyer, created all kinds of havoc, especially via his encouragement of an unleashed Maya who certainly ain't the same and who was fired by the firm. So what do you think she did in return? It might not be as straightforward as you think, but it ain't good. Plus, Bloom's sole mission in life eventually became the destruction of the firm. Yeah. Julius was enticed by an offer to become a high-powered conservative judge with the surprising help of ultra-liberal investigator Marissa Gold, whose father, don't forget, is the high-powered Democratic strategist and famed power broker Eli Gold. I love Eli. We need to see him again. Please. Plus, Marissa was connected to Maya's storyline. Don't forget, they're close friends. So just where did that go in the midst of Maya's transformation? <laughs> Luca Quinn asserted herself more and took on more responsibility. She also flirted with a former cast member from Downton Abbey, both literally and figuratively, which was fun to see. But did she get what she deserved as a result of her hard work? <laughs> Liz was socked in the gut by the news that Carl Reddick, her now deceased civil rights icon of a father and co-founder of the firm, abused his female employees. Oh, no, no, no. And she subsequently experienced a much less severe shock via her involvement with Diane's 2020 election fixing group after it, as I mentioned before, jumped the shark. But the outcome of those shocks was her clearer and more cynical world view, y'all. And Adrian tried to keep the firm afloat amid the Carl Reddick scandal, which took on an unexpected turn via a major client's deceptively shrewd investigators unearthing of something damaging for both him and Liz. He and others also tried to maintain their equilibrium amid racial tensions at the firm, which were also brought to the forefront by said investigator. <laughs> but you must keep in mind that all of this is in the good fight, which is run by the kings who never take sides cleanly. I mean, they take sides, but they also never miss a chance to put a spotlight on hypocrisy in whatever form it takes, which keeps this show from becoming sermonizing propaganda. In addition, their use of Jonathan Coulton's and Headgear Animation's animated musical shorts was so well-placed and effective, sometimes too effective, as was shown when one of the shorts, which was about Hollywood's efforts to censor its products to appease the Chinese government, was itself censored by CBS in ironic fashion. Ha, ha, ha. And so the good fight is like a boxer with quick hands and feet. And that's why when it goes too far, it never goes too far for too long. Plus, everything that happens in its episodes makes sense, no matter how ridiculous they seem, because the Kings make sure that each character's motivations are supported and clear. And they have such a wonderful cast. Plus, just like The Good Wife before it, nothing here is wasted. And that's why when The Good Fight isn't perfect, 
it's still very entertaining. It doesn't wallow in its flaws and things always move forward. In addition, this season's finale pulled back on most, though not all, of this show's theatrics, which, while still containing some really good laughs, actually made me listen a lot more as it tiptoed its way to a consequential ending moment. And that's why I certainly look forward to the good fights next season, which just might begin with a bang. Ooh. Now, we've given you all a lot to chew on while we're on our little hiatus. <laughs> You can check all of these TV shows out, some of them very quickly. <laughs> you might want to get there. Uh, but always keep here locked here at Why Watch That. We bid you for now. Adieu. Adieu. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, visit whywatchthat.com. Good idea, and we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and leave comments, feedback, and you can rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next week. See you.